as we're getting started today, uh, let me just suggest that I think, uh, I, I realize part of the fascination of this part of the Doctrine and Covenants in our church history is, is uh, kind of goes back to, uh, if, if you look at like our, our superhero movies that we're getting, like Iron Man and Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman and all that, here's what we look for on those. We like the origin stories. The origin stories seem to be the better ones, you know, where they don't know yet they're Batman. <laughs> they don't know yet they're going to be Spider-Man. And you see them develop into what they become, right? So, uh, like, this summer, one of the hottest movies will be Solo, which is Han Solo from Star Wars before he knew he was going to be Han Solo. And there was, you know, there is the origin stories, and you see the roots of what we know they become, and you see it in the movie, and we're fascinated by the origin stories of these, of these stories that we're telling. We're talking about origin stories now. And, and so to watch the origins of the church in its infancy and what they understood and didn't understand, it to me is just fascinating as you're putting this all together. Like, for instance, we're going to answer a question. If I asked, if I asked a question uh, at the beginning of the class, and I'll be able to ask it at the end, uh, who ordained Joseph Smith to the Melchizedek priesthood? I would guess that not one in here would get the answer right. Not one. And if you'd have asked me last week, I'd have got it wrong too. So, hang on. So there's your teaser. <laughs> who, ordained, who ordained Joseph Smith as an elder in the Melchizedek priesthood? And you're going to get to find out today, and it's not who you think it is. Okay? All right. That said, let's, let's get started here. Um... So, so let's let's set the uh, the setting here. We're going to step back a little bit. We we had them um, last week. We talked about in that we were finally starting to get the saints coming out of New York, uh, streaming down into Kirtland, and Joseph will be there the first week in February, 1831. The rest of the saints will start showing up in May and June as the ice thaws on the Erie Canal, and they can travel overland. And, uh, so they're going to start pouring into Kirtland from there. But I want to take it, I want to go back for just a second to uh, uh, December, because there are, there are a number of things that need to be in place for these saints to show up. Okay? Now, let's start with uh, DNC 38. Here we are. <coughs> DNC 38, which was given on what date? January 2nd. Joseph is still in in uh, Fayette. Uh, Sidney Rigdon is, is helping him. Um, now look at what comes here. Verse 1, Thus saith the Lord your God, even Jesus Christ, the great I Am, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Wow. The same who looked upon the wide expanse of eternity and all the seraphic hosts of heaven before the world. Wow. Now, you got you got to believe it too. Uh, I keep thinking, that, uh, you look at these first two revelations, and Sidney Rigdon is the scribe. And here's Sidney Rigdon, kind of the Baptist then Campbellite uh, minister. And here comes this scripture out of this rough boy. 
and you're hearing things like this. This had to be thrilling. Wow, this is, it's one thing to read the King James, it's another thing to have the King James being written word for word right in front of me and I'm writing it down. Okay? Which I am the same which spake and the world was made and all things were made by me. Now, verse 4. I am the same which have taken the Zion of Enoch into mine own bosom. If at this point Joseph was to go into the Old Testament, how many verses would he find about Enoch? Three. Three. Yeah. And Zion fled. There was Enoch, and Enoch lived so many years, and Zion fled. Where is he getting all of his stuff here about Zion? And Enoch. The Joseph Smith translation, which is happening when? Now. Chapter 7 of, of the, what we have of the book of Moses with all the discussion about Enoch and how God weeps and all that, that was just translated in December. This is concurrent. And part, see, part of what's happening here is you watch the doctrinal growth of the church and you're watching what Joseph Smith does and their understanding and the doctrine and covenants and the revelations. You, you can, it's almost like we could, and I almost set up this slide. It's like we have what they did. We had the revelations that we have in D&C. And quietly underlining all of these things is this Joseph Smith translation that is opening up to Joseph, uh, Adam, and Noah, and Enoch. And all of this stuff is opening up to him and it's quietly in the background. But I want you to see how majorly it impacts the revelations and his understanding of the gospel in a really huge way. Um, which is so funny to me. I was I was listening to a I was watching a, 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 a video last night of a, a guy that is an expert on the Old Testament, and is he is believing Latter Day Saint, and he's talking about here's where how the Bible was kind of written and everything, and he said and he says when Joseph Smith. What, what Joseph Smith was trying to do was trying to conceptualize these kind of things and bring these concepts together and, and, and this as opposed to and this is why he's doing all of this. And I started laughing. And I went, now Joseph didn't have a clue what he was doing. You know, the Lord is teaching him that his understanding of things are coming as it's revealed to him. Now, as he's got it and he gets it, now he can see it and he can start doing some things with it. But so much of what Joseph is doing, while Sidney is learning, Joseph is learning. Everybody that's watching this revelation, they're all learning this together and Joseph more than anybody. So, here's what's happening then. And this is going to be a major, major setup here. In December 1830, Joseph is finishing about the first seven chapters of the book of Moses. Sidney is acting as scribe. They've just done, they've just talked about Enoch. Now watch why the Lord is having this happen now. It was critical that Joseph have this understanding, this knowledge, because it's going to directly impact what they're able to do. Okay? 
I have taken Zion of Enoch into mine own bosom. Now, let's, let's pop over. I've got it hyperlinked here to Moses 7. Let's go over there and see what he had just translated. Okay? And the Lord called his people Zion. This is verse 18 of Moses 7. Because they were of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness. And there was no poor among them. And Enoch continued his preaching in righteousness unto the people. And it came to pass that in his days he built a city that was called the city of holiness, uh, even Zion. Okay? Now, let's talk about the problem for just a second. Um, and, and, and let's see where, why this becomes important. Verse 38 is going to say... Let's go down to... I'm back in D&C 38 now. Verse 13. Now Joseph and Sidney, I show unto you a mystery, a thing which is had in secret chambers, to bring to pass even your destruction in process of time, and you knew it not. What's about to happen in New York? They're about to actively start mobbing the saints. In Colesville, in Fayette, in Harmony, the opposition is building. This is the secret that is happening in the in the chambers. They're making. They're actively planning to attack the saints. Now, see, it's one thing if we're dealing with Joseph Smith, the 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 money digging rube that is just this kid, and he's coming up with stupid things like the like the uh, golden plates. Where, is the re where does this become a danger to the people of upstate New York? When people start believing. They start believing, and then what? And then the church starts to show up, and then they start to proselyte, and people are, suddenly it's a movement, it's become a thing. It's not just Joseph and, and Oliver, these idiots sitting over here. All at once there are people rallying and they're meeting together on a regular basis. And they seem to be believing this stuff. So now the opposition starts to kick in. What are we going to do with all these guys? Well, we're going to have to, we, we need to snuff this out. Because either these people are, there's some, some danger in what they're doing, or Joseph Smith is pulling in all of these, these uh, innocent rubes that are buying this stuff. Anyway, we've got to attack. We've got to snuff this thing out. Yes, thank you. That's that to me that's where the link is. If we look at those areas where it's one thing if the Mormons are kind of this weird little entity, it's another thing if they're suddenly starting to grow and develop. Um, I, I've mentioned before what a surprise it was uh, uh, a couple of years ago when we were on the, the Greek island of Santorini and we've got we've got this wonderful tour guide and she's a originally from uh, Germany, but she's now living, and she married a guy from Santorini, Greece, and we're going around, and finally she says, well, we said we're kind of a religious group, because she was going to show us the wine tasting areas, and we said, ah, no, you know, a religious group, really, um, who are you? And we said, well, we're all Mormon, and she gives me this blank stare, and I said, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? <laughs> Uh, Salt Lake City, the Utah, the Mormons, Brigham Young. 
Had never heard of it. Never heard of it at all. Okay? And, and so, if though, uh, I would imagine that the gospel were, would work okay for a little while in Santorini until people started to believe, then it becomes a thing. Well, now it's a thing in New York. And now they're going to start pushing back. Uh, now, the Lord is going to say to them, Now, I will tell you, you are blessed. Uh, but I will be merciful unto your weakness. Uh, for your salvation, I give unto you a commandment. For I have heard your prayers, and the poor have complained before me, and the rich I have made. And I, and I hold forth to give you a land of greater riches, a land of, of promise, a land flowing of milk and honey. Wow. Okay. Um, then he gives them this parable in verse 26. Watch the table that he's setting for a revelation that is a month away. I just want you to see how the Lord is already preparing all this stuff. Okay. Verse 25. I say unto you, let every man esteem his brother as himself. For what man among you, having twelve sons, and is no respecter of them, and they serve him obediently, so they're all equally righteous, okay? And he saith unto one, Be thou clothed in robes, and sit, there, sit thou there. And to the other, Be thou clothed in rags, and sit thou there. And looketh upon his sons, and saying, I am just. I've got 12 kids and I'm going to dress 12 of them rich and 12 of them poor. Would that look like a just God to you? No. Okay, you hear the arguments coming? You can see where he's going with all of this. Now, behold, 27, I give unto you as a parable and it is even as I am, I say unto you, be one. Even as Enoch and his city were of one heart and one mind. This would be this will be like flashbulb moment going off in Joseph's head. Okay? And again, just so that you don't miss it, the enemy in secret chamber seeketh your life. You see the precarious situation they're sitting in and they didn't even realize it. And we have a solution about how we're going to fix this. Okay? Now, uh, you hear of wars in far countries and you say that there will be great wars in far countries, but you know not the hearts of men in your own land. That's pretty dire. Now, 31. That you might escape the power of the enemy and be gathered unto me a righteous people without spot. For this cause I gave unto you the commandment that you should go where? To the Ohio. And there you're going to get two things. And, they, they, and it's funny how these things develop. First of all, he says, when you gather at the Ohio, first of all, you're going to get what? The law. Now, they must have looked at each other and went, wow, I wonder what that is. <laughs> the law. Woo. I guess we're going to know what to do. The law. 
<laughs> okay. Secondly, you're going to get what? An endowment of power. So you're going to get the law and you're going to get the endowment of power. That's what's waiting for you in the Ohio. So, and by the way, they're going to kill you here. So you should do what? Go. You should go. If you're, if you're not, if you're thinking about it, if you're on the fence, you can either stay here and get killed, or you can go there and get the law and an endowment of power. That must have been an interesting conversation at dinner. You know, around the table in Fayette and Colesville and Harmony. Okay? Yeah? Yeah, in case, in case uh, just, a, just a reminder, on the Ohio, why they're not just saying go to Ohio, the Ohio is the Western Reserve, this big piece of land that was reserved for the state of Connecticut, because they'd given up some lands, they were given the Ohio, this Western Reserve, uh, there on the banks of, the, of Lake Erie, uh, for people to move, and a lot of New Englanders had moved out of New England down into the Ohio. Okay, around this little Cleveland place and, and all that. Okay. All right, now. Um, now there's a he's still giving you some little hints here about what's coming. And now, verse 34, I give unto the church in these parts a commandment, that certain men among them shall be appointed, and they shall be appointed by the voice of the church, and they shall look to the poor and the needy, and administer to their relief, that they shall not suffer, and send them forth to the place which I have commanded them. And I think this is fascinating. Remember, this is January 1831. And this shall be their work, these people who are going to be appointed, to govern the affairs of the property of this church. Oh, okay. At this moment, tell me where the property of the church is. The gold plates. Yeah, which are gone, right? Okay. Outside, what's the property of the church? Maybe the manuscripts, the, like the revelation books, where they're compiling the revelations. Outside of that, where's the property of the church? Just what the neighbors own. It's just their own, what they own. There is no property of the church yet. But it's a foreshadowing of what's about to happen and the commandment that he's about to give us. Okay? So, I just think that's interesting. To govern the affairs of the property of church. And, they that have farms that cannot be sold, let them be left or rented as seemeth them good. Okay, now, they're about to have the same problem that they had in New York, that they will ultimately have in Nauvoo. What happens when everybody in town gets up and goes? And you're going to like put your house up for sale. Who's buying your house? In Nauvoo, as they're all heading off to the west, who's going who's to buy Wilford Woodruff's house? Yeah, there's the problem, right? In Kirtland, when they leave to go to Missouri, who's going to buy the who's going to buy the houses? What's the problem? 
both left the box. Well, yeah, and they're all leaving at the same time. So if I, I'm a potential buyer, it's like, wow, I, do, I really do like Brigham Young's house. They're sitting in Nauvoo. Why should I buy it when I can just wait a month or so and just take it over? So in New York, even though all of these people, remember, property and wealth among the rural people in New York, the saints as well as the non-saints, their wealth was in their property. It wasn't in the bank. That's where their wealth lied. Okay? So uh, when they're going to have to get up and leave their farm, people aren't going to buy the farm at face value. They're going to, if the very least, they'll pay it pennies on the dollar. So what's that going to happen to all of these landed, wealthy people in Fayette and Colesville and what's going to happen to them? Now they're all going to become more equal. They are. E equally rich or equally poor. Or more Zionistic. Yeah, but they're coming poor. They were land rich. Now, if they're just going to take whatever money they had that they were going to use for crops or whatever pennies on the dollar they could get for their land, what we now have, picture what's about to happen here. You're going to have hundreds of people pouring out of New York that are poor. They have very little money. They, and, and, and the Lord is saying to them, and if, they, if the farms cannot be sold, let them be left or rendered as seemeth them good. They might just walk away from their farms. As the saints did in Nauvoo. They couldn't sell their houses in Nauvoo. They just walked away. And just left the stuff there. Except for Brigham Young's wife, who then didn't want the, pe the new people to get the china. So she goes out to the backyard and she buries her china uh, in the backyard and covers it up. Okay? You can have the rest of my house, you just can't have my china. You know? Uh, I suspect there was some of that going on here. We're just going to take what we've got and we're streaming into Kirtland. How are we going to be taken care of in Kirtland? Don't know. But the Lord is saying, go, and so we're going basically on faith, and now they're going to pour out of here. Um, and, and so th that's really kind of the place that we're at. Okay? Does that make sense? So look at the situation. Now we're going to get up and go, and we're going to get to the Ohio, and we're going to be given two things, the law and an endowment. Don't know what those are, but we're going. Okay? Yeah? How, how many? I mean, was there... Uh, as I was at, kind of doing my own little adding up, and I think I think there were probably about 150 in Kirtland. It, they started off about 127, but people were rallying. So by the time these people are showing up here, there's probably a couple of hundred saints in Kirtland, and probably about that many coming out of New York. So because we know that David Whitmer or that. Uh, uh, Martin Harris has 50. Uh, I know that uh, Thomas Marsh has 50. Uh, Mother Smith has about 80. Uh, the Colesville Saints are showing up with about 60. So you've almost got as many poor coming out of New York as you've got those waiting for them on the other side in Kirtland. Kind of an interesting moment. Okay? All right. So. That said, um, 
Before, the, before we get to the law, let, uh, let, let me just break off for just a second because I want to make sure that we take just a moment on this. Um, I want to take just a second so that you know what Joseph's kind of got in his hip pocket here, and that is the translation on the Bible. Uh, so, so give me just a second for a little background on this. Uh, in Moses 1, that he, he uh, translates in June of 1830, Moses is being told this, Thou shalt write the things which I shall speak. And in a day when the children of men shall esteem my words as not, and take away many of them from the book which thou shalt write, remember this is the Lord to Moses, okay? Behold, I will raise up another like unto thee, and they shall be had again among the children of men. What shall be had among the children of men again? The words. Uh, the, the, again, let me step back. Um, if, if we take a look at the book of Exodus, for instance, in the Bible, the problem that we have with the book of Exodus is that it, it's hard to know how much we have and exactly where all it came from. Uh, uh, the book of uh, uh, the king, of J king Josiah and his scribes rewrote the Old Testament in a major way about 700 BC. Uh, when 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 is when the Israelites are dragged off to Babylon in the exile under Nebuchadnezzar, they will begin to write the Old Testament based on what's left after Josiah's scribes got a hold of it. And we think most of the Old Testament was written by the scribes in exile in Babylon. So there were a lot of, what I'm saying is there was a lot left out of the, the Old Testament. What we've got is really kind of been written and rewritten and, and so there's a lot missing. Where, where in, the, in the Old Testament, if we show it today, where do we have Melchizedek? All the stuff about Melchizedek. Where's all the stuff about Enoch? All gone. All scrubbed. So Joseph is being told, uh, as, he's, as he's looking at... What he's, what he's seeing here, I will raise up another, Joseph... Like unto thee, Moses, and these words which have been scrubbed and cleaned out will be had again among the children of men, among as many as shall believe. So this is what got him starting in June, especially through, from June to about January. He's really heavily working on the Old Testament uh, translation and trying to bring all these things back. Uh, just a couple pieces of information on that. The book of Moses... Began June 1830. Um, Joseph Smith's translation primarily from Genesis 1 to Genesis 6. He changed about 1,300 Old Testament verses. That's a lot. Including adding major sections on uh, Belchizedek and Enoch that weren't previously available. And Adam... Okay. Is the book of Moses, Joseph Smith wrote the book of Moses, or did he have the book of Moses and translate? Ah, she says, did Joseph Smith write the book of Moses? Jo the book of Moses was a revelation. 
And it's coming the same way as, uh, as the other, like all the sections in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's coming as a revelation because he didn't have the book of Moses in front of him. Okay. Any more than really he, when he does the book of Abraham, he has these papyrus there, but they're really not the, it's not the writings of Abraham. Book of Abraham's as much a revelation as the book of Moses. Okay. And we'll talk about that when we when the papyrus shows up and Michael Chandler and all that stuff. Okay, so he's going to change about thirteen hundred Old Testament verses, and part of this is having these things revealed, but part of it is educating Joseph Smith. So he's getting to understand the theology and the stuff that was left out. This is the education of a prophet. Okay, now he will also change. The Lord will tell him to work on the New Testament. He will change about 2,100 New Testament verses, but they are really minor, and, now, and just recent stuff, just in the last six months, we've really come to understand that Joseph used a commentary, for the most part, on the changes he made in the New Testament thing. There would be, like the italicized words in the New Testament, you're reading in like the book of Mark, and then there'll be an italicized word. He would look at that, he would look at a commentary, he would pray about it, think about it for a second, then he'd just make, and instead of whose, it's whom. <laughs> they, it's them. You know, he's just making minor changes in the New Testament. But the Old Testament is where he changed a massive amount of things. And most of it was before he got to Kirtland, which is going to come really helpful when the law shows up. Okay, because he's got to draw on that. Yeah. There was an Old Testament, I'm trying to remember the name, uh, uh, some uh, uh, Bible scholars of the time. Joseph had a copy of a commentary uh, that was out at the time, and I just don't remember the name of it right off the top of my head. He was looking off of that. He had that. We have, we have record that he had this commentary in front of him while he was doing the New Testament. He had nothing in front of him with the Old Testament. Okay. All right. Now, by the way, the, the Joseph Smith translation was packaged and ready to go. For the most part, Joseph wanted to finish a couple of things when he's martyred in June of 1844 in Nauvoo. So he's not able to finish it. So that means that, that all of that Joseph Smith translation went to who? Emma. Emma held on to that. That's why the, the, the uh, Joseph Smith translation ended up with what church? The reorganized, the community of Christ, absolutely. And it's only been in the last while here under Robert Matthews about uh, 30 years ago we were able to finally forge an old historian died in the community of Christ, a new historian took over, gave BYU access to the Joseph Smith translation. We were able to get that, I guess 40 years, in time for the new uh, for the, the new version of the Bible in, or the scripture, LDS scriptures in 1981. Just in time to include all of this stuff. So anyway, more stuff than you really wanted to know. But, so, questions on, on this stuff? We'll get in more into Pearl the Great Price, but I just wanted you to see. I need you to know that this translation is it running in the background. It's like a subroutine in Joseph's life as he's receiving the uh, revelations in Kirtland. Okay? All right, yeah. Was he using, when he was um, doing the changes, was he using a King James version? Yes, yeah, he was. Um, but that, that's why it's interesting. And so the, the language is kind of King James-ish 
if you'll if you listen. He's kind of what he's receiving by revelation will match kind of the language of the King James. Okay. All right. Let's go back then. So he's going to get to. Uh, He's going to get now to Joseph, uh, goes with his wife and Joseph Knight. They ride down to Kirtland, as we were talking about last time. Uh, he walks into the, uh, the uh, Noel Whitney store. He says, I am Joseph the prophet. Wow, you're here. That's cool. Uh, what are we going to do with you? Oh, we're going to... So the, the, they find a place for Joseph to live. Um, and the brethren are now excited when Joseph shows up in Kirtland. He is no longer the money, the, the money digging uh, weird kid from Palmyra. He's showing up to a group of hundreds of people that are anxious, have been reading the, the Book of Mormon, have been reading his revelations. Uh, from the moment he walks into Kirtland, he is Joseph the prophet. And his whole, his whole identity is suddenly shifted and changed. Okay, So they receive him excitedly. He has several places he could live. Uh, he's starting to write. But now if you are the brethren who have been waiting in Kirtland. And by the way, so how things in New York? Oh, there are hundreds of them coming. They're all gathering here. Wow. Do you think that maybe the elders in Kirtland had questions? And they have the revelator here. So, ask, here's our questions. Ask God what we're supposed to do. And what we have history of through Joseph Smith papers uh, in, a, in this revelation that will come in uh, on May, uh, February 9th, 1831, the, the brethren were submitting questions to Joseph. We need answers on these questions. And so here comes section 42. And section 42 is the law. If, in you, if you got paper scriptures, I would write in pen across the, the heading on your 42, I would write the law. Because this is the law that was promised. And it's a working document. Of all the revelations that we have, we have about five copies of the law. Why? Because they would make a copy of the law and they would read it and they would hand it out and they would share it. The first public uh, uh, publication of a Joseph Smith revelation actually happens in a Painesville, Ohio newspaper. Why? Because one of the brethren gave the newspaper editor a copy of the law. And he goes, oh, here's what the Mormonites believe. And they published in the newspaper in March, the law. And everybody understood, this is the law. The law was also seen as a working document. It could be added to. It's a breathing document. If there are more questions, they'll be more rev revealed. Okay? Um, so, this is section 42. Now... In my little notes, I just put several copies were made of the law. At least five copies have been recovered. Uh, it's re we recognize that it's a working document. And this answers the first five questions the elders were asking in Kirtland. You can almost guess some of the questions these guys were asking. So I tried to include some of them. It's one of the things I love about 
kind of electronic thing, I can actually load these things in between my verses. Okay? So, above verse 3, I've got the law was a direct answer to several questions asked by the elders as the church gathered in the Ohio. First question from the brethren. Um, should the saints gather into one place or continue in separate establishments? How are we supposed to do this? They had a, some sense um, with um, blocking on his name. Tell me a sec. Anyway, one of the they were trying to do some form of, of the law of consecration. Have all things in common. It didn't work really well. Isaac Morley. Morley, Thank you. Uh, Isaac Morley had volunteered part of his farm. People were coming to the Isaac Morley farm, um, but it just—they were kind of taking each other's stuff a lot. wasn't working. Okay, so they had some sense of it. Now, so here, but the but the initial question—the answer is different than the question. He's going to get to the question, but here's the first answer. Uh, Verily I say, you who have established yourselves together according to the commandment, I've commanded, agreed, and ask the Father in my name, you shall receive. Okay, four. I say unto you, I give unto you this first commandment, which is what? Go forth and teach. Oh, all right. Every one of you except Joseph and Sidney. You're supposed to go teach. Now, these missions might only last three or four months, but everybody's supposed to go. Now, by the way, I think it's interesting. I won't take time to do it, but they're going to be told... um, Oh, maybe it's right here. That's farther on here. Anyway, he's going to say, go to the south, go to the west, go to the north... If you happen to go east, tell them to come quickly. Because <laughs> you just don't know the stuff that's about to happen in the east. So, you can preach the gospel elsewhere, but if you're going to the east, you tell them, if you're accepting the church, you've got to come to Ohio fast. We've got to get you out of New York. So, that's first, so the first commandment is, go and teach. Go out and teach. Great. Now, this is coming in February. If you are a believer in this new church, what, what happens if you have a farm in February? What's going to happen in February and March on a farm in Ohio? Not a whole lot, but as you get into April, what are you preparing to do? Planting. This is spring. If it's an early spring, you might be able to plant early. If it's a late spring, like they're having right now up there, they got two feet of snow, I guess, in Green Bay uh, last night. It may be later, but they don't know. But generally, this is the time to fix your plows, get ready, and prepare to prepare for the spring planting. And now they're being told, go on missions. Wow. And and just go for a few months. Well, we get back, it's July. We missed the whole planting season. Wow. Okay. Give them a commandment. They shall go for as little season. Uh, Most of them, I think, just kind of went for a month or so and came back in time to plant. Okay. 
until the time it shall be revealed from you on high where the the new Jerusalem is uh, they will find that out in the summer Joseph's going to go out to Missouri that's next week and again I say unto you Edward Partridge shall stand in the office I've appointed him he's the first bishop and it shall come to pass that uh, if he transgress, another shall be appointed. Even so, amen. So what you watch in this document, these even so, amen, it's like there's the finished answer for that question. Next question. Now, again, if you are one of those brethren that says, oh, I'm supposed to go on a mission. What are you worried about? My family, my family and my farm. Okay. Well, all right. Question number two. Well, then tell us about the law regulating the church in her present situation until the time of her gathering. What are we supposed? How is this? What What is the law? What is the law we're supposed to live under? Uh, it is interesting to me that when you go into the Joseph Smith papers, uh, and John Whitmer is the scribe at this point, and he's writing all of this, the uh, revelations coming from Joseph Smith. In great big letters across every revelation is written, Commandment. <laughs> they weren't just revelations, these are commandments. Here's a law. okay, and, uh, Or it's a commandment to Joseph and Sidney. Uh, so, so what is the law? Okay, well, the law is, uh, and he keeps going on the missionary thing. Should be given to preach the gospel, build up the church, that it needs to be ordained. And again, the elders, priests, and teachers of this church, verse 12, shall teach the principles of the gospel, which are where? In the Bible and the Book of Mormon, uh, in which is the fullness of the gospel. So teach the Bible in the Book of Mormon. Off you go. <laughs> See ya. Better read it. Okay? And you shall observe the covenants and church articles to do them. Uh, and the Spirit will be given unto you by the prayer of faith. And the Comforter knows all things. Then he's going to give them kind of the things you would expect as part of the law. Okay? Uh, thou shalt not kill. That would be bad. Uh, thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not lie. Love your wife. Uh, don't commit adultery. Whoops. Two. Okay. He's going through again what you would expect. Uh, thou knowest my laws. 28. Concerning these things. 29. If thou lovest me, serve me, keep my commandments. Okay. Now. Here comes the meat, though. Here's the real essence of the law. That stuff they knew. This they did not know, and this was, this was the new part. This is a little bit like when, when uh, now you hear in general conference when they say, uh, we're going to give President Nelson a few minutes. <laughs> it isn't really a talk, but he just needs a few minutes. It's a short one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you hear that in October, what are you going to do? <laughs> Ethel, get in here quick! <laughs> President Nelson's about to say something. Get the kids down here. All right, line them up. <laughs> Put on your seatbelt. <laughs> it could be anything. Okay? You know, that's exactly how they did it in the 60s when, uh, with the uh, correlation program. And you probably were at the priesthood meeting. Yeah. yeah. The case stood up. He said, we are going to introduce the new... Here we go. Program. 
And he says, please listen to that too. Yeah. Elderly and elder. But away you go. And, and it's exactly the exact same thing. You know, the only thing that would be worse than that was like under the times of Brigham Young when they'd say, the following have been called to serve missions <laughs> to England. Uh, and, and listen to see if your name is called. You know, and they would hear the mission calls while they're sitting there. We just showed up for sacrament for uh, state conference, and now suddenly we're on our way to, you know, wherever. Be ready to serve for three years and be gone in a week. Okay, yeah, that would be worse. Okay, all right, but here we go. Now behold, thou wilt remember the poor and do what? Consecrate thy properties. Now, let me back up just a bit here. Because there's a principle underlying this that I, that I want to uh, have us look at here. And it's just this general principle. When we talk about something being profane, we've talked about this a little bit in the past. What is profane in a spiritual sense? Worldly. It's of the world. Okay? Now, we're going to take something that exists, profane, and somehow it's going to be made sacred. How do you take something that is profane and make it sacred? Consecrated. It has to be consecrated. And what does a consecration look like? How do you know you have now consecrated? You what? Yeah, and you're going to do that through covenant. So the way that we take something of the world and we're going to set it apart and make it sacred is that we make covenants and promises. Now, in a, in a sense, how, does the Lord take us as people and take us from being profane and make us sacred? Yes. How does he do that? Washing, anointing, all those kind of things. There's this process, and in each case, we are making covenants with him about what we will do, and what's he doing? He's making promises about what he will do. What, listen to the sacrament. At the moment that uh, we're, we're breaking bread and the water and stuff like that, we're taking ordinary bread. And the priests are making something that was profane, worldly, and making it sacred. Now, when we take that into, our, into us, we're saying, what do we covenant to do? Always remember him, keep his commandments. And if we do that, what does he do? I will give my spirit to you, always. Okay. In other words, uh, he covenants back with us. I will make you sacred. You will be my people. You will be one with me as I am with you. Okay. That's what consecration is. The, the endowment of power that we get in the temple comes as we do what? We covenant, right? I promise to do this. Great. Here's this. Okay. I promise to do this. Great. You get that. I promise to do this. Great. You make all these covenants and promises. Then what happens? Now you will be admitted into the presence of the Lord. Okay. Because why? I covenant. I made these promises. These things I'm willing to do. And we walk out of the temple sacred as opposed to profane. 
We walk out of the waters of baptism sacred as opposed to profane. We have been consecrated and made sacred. We've been sanctified. Okay? Now, so let's go back. So, he's going to say, thank you. All right. Behold, thou wilt remember the poor and do what? Consecrate your properties. Now, it's kind of a fascinating little thing. And he's going to remind, he was reminding us in, in a previous revelation. Okay. Uh, I am the Lord over all the earth and all things are mine. Okay. Just a reminder. <laughs> but now if you're going to join my kingdom, I have this farm I'm very proud of. I've worked darn hard to make this my farm and it's, and it's producing very, very well. And the Lord is going to come along and say, great, you, I have sanctified you. I've made you one of my sons and daughters. You're now part of the kingdom. And in return for that, what am I going to require at your hand in Kirtland? You must consecrate your property. Wow. Yeah. I don't remember where I was reading it last night, but it, it, it talks about how the Lord says that if you have wealth, I'm the one that gave it to you. It was mine in the first place. Yes, I know. Okay, I'm, I'm perplexed because it seemed like everybody lost their property. Is there anybody that has any money or property who has yeah? Who has property and money in Kirtland? Everyone just gave it up. In New York. Yeah. So who's, who's got the property? The Kirtland Saints. <laughs> so that's why Isaac Morley has a big farm. Uh, Lehman Copley has a big farm. John Johnson has a big farm. There are big farms there, and we're asking the brethren in Kirtland. Here comes this inflow of people from New York and these are our brethren we're now going to see you face to face and but then that's lot lovely to have you here great can I have part of your farm is a stretch it's tough and people like Lehman Copley originally says okay and then everybody from Colesville showed up in on his property and he goes nah I changed my mind <laughs> That's why the Colesville gang goes on to Missouri because they didn't have a place, didn't have farms. But there's the ideas that they're going to come. Now, just from a just from a standpoint, as a side note, let's just talk about law of consecration for just a sec. Do we live the law of consecration today in the church? No, no, no. Mess it up. Do we covenant to do it as part of a if it's asked in the future? Yep, we do. Been to the temple, you promised to do it. Are we being asked to do it yet? No. Now, time and energy and effort, yeah, we're covenanting that, but in terms of properties, not yet. Uh, although, if you're Scoutmaster and you have a van, you soon realize that, that your van belongs to the, to the ward, it no longer belongs to you. <laughs> Uh, as uh, when, I, when I was bishop, our, our scoutmaster had a brand new van, and on his very first trip, he takes the scouts out, and, uh, and before they could even leave town, one kid is already thrown up in his van. <laughs> it's like, congratulations, you've been broken in, and thank you for letting us use your van. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
So, but under the way that we have it now, if we have from the welfare system, uh, and, and President, we'll set aside self-reliant the self-reliance program for just a second, okay? Just from the quote welfare, which is really a bad name because it's really kind of what the world calls it, but we'll just use the common parlance, okay? Church's welfare program says that if I have somebody who is lost their job or through a variety of things they are unable to have a place to live or pay for their bills, what are we doing? We will assist through the fast offerings of the church. We'll pay rent. Um, we will we will take care of them in a variety of, of ways. Okay, I'm personally grateful for the bishops of the church that are more than happy often to make sure that somebody can get some counseling that they need if they if they can't afford that. Okay. Um, that's how we do that. But in the end of the day, uh, if you look at just from wealth and where the wealth sits in a, among a ward, that doesn't, is anybody getting wealthy under the church's welfare program? No. No. And uh, those that have money and those that have wealth tend to hang on to their wealth. They've given, they've, they've imparted, they've paid fast, generous fast offerings. Those that are poor under the church welfare, are they getting rich under the welfare system? No. There's no wealth being created through the church's welfare system. And that's not the plan. Now, is there wealth being created under the law of consecration? Think about this. And we'll just take the fact that everybody's farmers for a second. Okay? If I have a wealthy farm and it is growing and blowing and I'm a good farmer but my kids have, have left the farm and we don't have as many here but I have more than I really need. I have residue I have remainder and here comes somebody that is also a farmer that is poor. They're coming out of New York. What am I going to do? We're going to give them maybe these 20 acres or something like that and they're going to take these and they're going to go work that farm. So at the end of a planning season, do I have my wealth? Yes. I do. I'm still well taken care of. I'm happy. I have sufficient for my needs. Okay? What about the people that got the welfare? Or in other words, those that got consecrated uh, the, this big acre of, acres of land. Are they still poor? No. No. If they if they've gone to and they've worked it, guess what? They've now created wealth themselves, and so suddenly uh, I may have, may not have quite as many acres, but over here they've become far more wealthy than they were. Now, what happens if they work really hard and grow and develop the farm and take that and think of it as a parable of the talents? This really does apply. And if we were really taking a whole lesson on consecration, we'd go into this. But it is the parable of the talents. I've given you five talents. What do I expect? You're going to turn it into ten. I gave you three. What am I expecting? You're going to turn it into six. If you get 20 acres under the law of consecration, you may grow that thing, you become wealthy, and maybe you need more land. But now what? You've got the money and the means to go buy another 20. You might. So in other words, what happens is everybody becomes prosperous under the law of consecration. It's a very cool thing. Very, very cool. Yeah. The only problem with that is that when you start dividing those farms, they're no longer viable to provide a full income. 
Yeah. In other words, it's going to take a while. Just because I got the acreage, I may not see any money coming back to that thing for maybe another year, right? By the time I grow and plant. And what uh, typical farmers do is try to accumulate enough wealth so that they can finance farms for their children. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. So during the time though that my farm isn't quite producing yet, where am I still going to need help? Yes. And where am I going to get it under the law of consecration? From the bishop's storehouse. Okay, the bishop is going to make sure that we're provided for. And the nice thing too, that's the cool thing about saying, and if I have a prosperous farm, what happens if I'm called on a mission to England? Well, somehow that will be taken care of. And the, and the high council's job was to say, either we're going to have somebody come in and farm this, or we're going to make sure that your family eats. Now, let me, ask one, let me add one last thing. Because we're in a capitalistic mind here. Right? If you have a job, and those of you who are retired, you worked most of your life, what are you living off of? Retirement. Money that you took. In other words, you said, here's what our house, when I'm, when I'm younger, here's what my household needs to survive. Here's the residue. We're making more than my bills. What am I doing with the more that I don't need for my bills? Save. I'm saving it. In other words, I'm going to make sure, self-reliance, I'm going to make sure that I can cover myself in the future because I take my residue and I put it into a savings account. Or I put it into a money marketing scheme that then they take my money and then I don't do that again. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But anyway, I'm doing something with my remainder, my residue that I will be able to live off later. The Lord's plan wasn't for these people to come here to Kirtland and get rich. Right. It was for them to hold tight, to be whole, and to prepare for the next move. To... Missouri. Yes. But even so, that still applies to all of us. None of us are here in the metroplex to get rich. We may think we are. Right. But in fact, we are here to prepare, you know, to build the church and to move forward to our next. Sure. But, uh, but our mindset says, I don't know how long I'm going to be here on this earth. So for me and my family, stuff like that, I'm going to take my residue and I'm going to invest it and I'm going to take care of it and maybe I buy extra houses in a hot job market, you know, kind of thing. And, you know, and, and so what happens when we say to people, you are wealthy, you have done well with your property and your everything. We need you to take the residue and instead of putting it in a savings account you can draw on later, we need you to take that residue and put it where? Give it back to the bishop. There's a level of faith and trust that is involved in all of this. Can you see why in a, in a and I don't know if we're going to get to it this semester, probably not. When the bank fails in Kirtland, can you see why it is that so many apostatized from the church? Because they were counting and trusting that that they would be protected. Okay. Alright. So, here we go. Behold, thou wilt remember the poor consecrate the properties, verse 30, for their support. 
uh, insomuch as you impart of your substance to the poor, you'll do it unto me, you give it to the bishop. Now, I love this, and I just wanted to point this out. Look at verse 32. And it shall come to pass that after they are laid before the bishop, and after that he has received these what? Testimonies. Well, that's an interesting word. What testimony? The same as we stand bear our testimony of any principle that we learn from. Yes. And in this case, what principle are we talking about? Faith. Yeah, in other words, another, he's going to say, when I've received your testimony concerning the consecration of the properties of the church. We need to probably change that. I think the word testimony needs to be changed just a little bit. And I think what he's saying here is, after we have received your covenant, after we have received your promise, concerning the consecration of, the, of your properties unto my church, that they cannot be taken away from the church. <laughs> You're agreeing to do it permanently. You're not going to just like, oh, I changed my mind. I, I think it can also refer to the fact that what you have left goes much further. And the oh, I like that. Yeah, I have a belief that, like we have uh, testimonies of tithing and how that stretches. That suddenly, my sufficient for my needs. I might find that I end up. I thought I had sufficient for my needs, but I don't need as much. Maybe I end up giving more because it's so much more productive. Great point. Okay. All right. So as soon as I covenant concerning the consecration. Uh, then I then at the bottom of verse 32 I'm going to be made a steward over my own property uh, or that which he has received by consecration as sufficient for himself and his family okay all right verse 35 elders question number five I'm not including uh, 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 three and four, uh, but this is number five. For the purpose of purchasing lands uh, and building houses of worship and building up the, te- the new Jerusalem, which hereafter to be revealed. Verse 36 That my covenant people may be gathered in one day when I shall come where? Wow. At the moment, we don't have any church properties. Now what are we supposed to have? A temple. Where's the temple? No, it hadn't been built. If you're in Kirtland at that point, where do you think the temple... What temple are we talking about in their mind when in, in February of 1831? There is going to be the New Jerusalem temple. I don't think what has entered in their, into their minds yet is the possibility that there will be a temple in Kirtland. But he's saying, I, and did he come to his temple? Sure. It's more immediate than they thought. Okay. Now. Uh, trying to see if there's anything more that we want to talk about here. So, this is the law, and it expanded out, and it would grow from time to time based on questions and all that. Yeah. The term covenant path. Yeah. I just had this thought, which was used 26 times in our last general 
Covenant path. This chapter, I was just looking through like every covenant. Wow. On that covenant path. Yeah, isn't that cool? And, and, and you see kind of what we covenant to do. And, so, and I think it's more, when we talk about ministering, aren't we kind of getting into the spirit of what this is? In other words, take, be one. Be part of, take care of one another in so many ways. Okay? Uh, I, I like. Yeah, please do. Okay. Um, all right. Um, I want to, um, in the time that we have remaining... In the time went remaining, I want to I want to kind of finish with this. I want to make sure that we get this covered before we leave today. Um, remember when they they were told before Joseph ever left New York that they would receive two things in Kirtland. They would receive the law, and they would receive what an endowment of power. Now. In the ultimate sense, what endowment of power do they get in Kirtland? In the ultimate sense. The temple. They're going, to, they're going to be endowed with power. It's not the full endowment, but they're going to receive the keys. They're going to receive so much power. Now, Joseph believed that that endowment of power was going to happen sooner than that. So once they get the majority of the brethren down here, um, they're going to get them. They're going to get them in town uh, on June 9th. Joseph is going to ask uh, about 60 brethren to come to the Isaac Morley farm to this, and and we're going to come together with an idea towards we are going to receive an endowment of power. And what he has in mind is there's going to be a series of ordinations that happen on June 9th at the, at the Isaac Morley farm. Um, what happens there is uh, a lot more than what they were planning on. Um, and, I, and I got thinking about it. I'm just going to, maybe the best way to handle this, I'm just going to quote... Uh, and uh, I apologize for quoting, but I just don't think it can be said any better than what uh, Bushman said in Rustone Rolling. So let me, I'm going to quote him. In early June, 44 elders, four priests, and 15 teachers met in the log schoolhouse near the Isaac Morley farm, hoping for that spiritual endowment that had been promised. Levi Hancock, who had early been startled by visionaries, was baffled by the happenings that day. In an expansive spirit, Joseph said the Christ kingdom, like a mustard seed, was now before him. Uh, according to Hancock, jumping down, Joseph promised Lyman White he would see Christ that day. White soon turned stiff and white, exclaiming that he had indeed viewed the Savior. According to Hancock, Joseph himself said, I now see God and Jesus Christ at his right hand. That's cool, right? Uh, then the meeting unraveled. <laughs> Joseph ordained Harvey Whitlock to the high priesthood. We'll talk about that in a sec. The most important business of the meeting, and Whitlock reacted badly. He turned as black as Lyman was white. 
Hancock reported, his fingers were set like claws. He went around the room and showed his eyes and tried to speak. His eyes were the shape of oval O's. Oh, this is a fun meeting. <laughs> Astonished by the turn of, I love this. Astonished by the turn of events, Hiram exclaimed, Joseph, this is not of God. This doesn't feel very good. <laughs> okay. Uh, Joseph, unwilling to cut the phenomenon short, told Joseph to wait. But Hiram insisted, I will not believe unless you inquire of God, and he owns it. <laughs> Hancock said, Joseph bowed his head, and in a short time got up, commanded Satan to leave Harvey, laying his hands upon his head at the same time. Then Hancock and Lehman Copley, who weighed over 200 pounds, somersaulted in the air and fell on his back on a bench. Well, that's kind of impressive. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, it just gets better. Uh, White sat, cast Satan out of Copley, and Copley was calm. The evil spirit, according to Hancock, was in and out of people all day in the greater part of the night. Now, listen closely here. Joseph, who was ordaining men to the high priesthood, came eventually to Hancock and assured him he had a calling as high as any man in the house. The words brought Hancock relief. I was glad for that, for I was so scared uh, that I would not stir without his liberty for all the world. Okay? Uh, so, they had this kind of scary, hard to know everything that happened because this was recorded a little bit later. All we know is that there was some kind of physical manifestation of both uh, healthy spirit and evil spirit that inflicted all of these men. And it, it was really quite a battle. Okay? Some are going to walk out of their pot and they're going to apostatize. Um, uh, let's see, walking back from the meeting, Hancock turned Harvey, heard Harvey Green, one of the possessed, say he could not describe the awful feeling. Uh, as John Whitmer reported in the minutes, and buckle up for a sec here, you ready? I'm just giving you some warning. As John Whitmer reported in the minutes, the Lord showed unto Joseph the seer the design of this thing. He commanded the devil in the name of Christ, and he departed to our joy and comfort. During the turbulent meeting, Joseph ordained five men to the high priesthood, and na, 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 Lyman White ordained 18 others, including Joseph. In his, in Joseph's own records, in uh, February 1844 in the Times and Season in Nauvoo, Joseph will say, as he's writing his history, he will say, uh, in 1831, I conferred the high priesthood, the Melchizedek priesthood, for the first time upon several of the elders. And who was it that ordained Joseph Smith to the Melchizedek priesthood? Lyman White. Was that not Oliver who ordained him first? That was the Aaronic priesthood. What, what we think happened, the, be, the best we can put here, is that uh, under the hands of Peter, James, and John, they received the keys to the Melchizedek priesthood. But, this, but he's describing for the first time that this is where he received the Melchizedek priesthood, was in this June 9th meeting. Now, 
That's kind of confusing to all of us that expected that he had it all along. Okay? Who did Peter, James, and John ordain then? They laid their hands on, on Joseph and Oliver's head and gave them the keys. We think the key, that's the best I can put on it that, because we don't have anything other than this. Just simply, and it's, so there's a little bit of a mystery here, right? That says that uh, they received under the hands of Peter, James, and John. Uh, appears to be the keys, but there wasn't an actual ordination and Joseph himself said he wasn't ordained until this meeting. And I'm not sure I know exactly all of what that implies. Did Oliver ordain, ordain Joseph as first elder and then Joseph ordained... That, hap- that, that experience happened where it says ordained Joseph the elder. That happens on April 6, 1830 during the organizational meeting of the church. We're now thinking that the, their understanding of the word, our understanding of what the word elder means and their understanding of what the word elder means might have been different. Elder meaning director in the church. It may not necessarily have been elder in the Melchizedek priesthood in the way that we understand it. Okay? Yeah. Lyman White could be authority. Lyman White had just been given it from Joseph Smith. Okay? Yes, because he had the keys to give it. And in turn, Lyman White will ordain him uh, to, to the Melchizedek priesthood. And that's all I got. <laughs> you know, beyond that, this is simply what's being reported. Now, does that jangle against our understanding? Yeah, it kind of does. Do, does this necessarily resolve it? Not completely. Simply that this is what's being recorded. So there's a little bit of a... We don't completely understand everything that's happening here other than what Joseph reported in his history. So, But if someone were to ask me today, who do I believe? If I were looking at Joseph Smith... Because generally, it, when we look at our, our, our uh, ordination uh, lineage, we tend to go, okay, I was ordained by you know, such and such on this day and they got it from this person and they got it from this person and we're pretty careful about what day and then the state clerk makes sure that they've said what day they were ordained under the hands of who and they can follow their lineage. We're good about that now. Back then, not so much. But I would have to say just based on what the history is saying and what Joseph Smith reported, if you ask me today who, did, who was under Joseph Smith's lineage, uh, who ordained him to the Melchizedek priesthood, I'd have to say Lyman White. But a year earlier, they were ordained apostles. Yeah, exactly right. Don't you need the Melchizedek? Wouldn't you think? I know. I, I don't have an answer to that, President. I really don't. Um, and so that, and, all, and, and when, I've, when I've gone back and looked at the LDS scholars and everything that I can put together on that, the belief is still that their understanding of what an apostle was and what an elder is different than what we think an apostle and elder is now. It hadn't necessarily refined itself to the point of where we are today. Um, so, so, again, all we're doing is looking at records and saying this is what the, the the prophet himself has reported. I just I was I was stunned when I was reading this. I just this was not what I was expecting or would have thought a, a year ago. Yeah. So you're saying uh, Lyman White ordained him to the to an office? In office? He, no, he say he says I received. He was ordained to the uh, Melche- the high priesthood, which was their call for the the Melchizedek priesthood. The Bible dictionary said that Peter, James, and John. Gave them the power and authority. Yeah, yeah, 
And, and so whether that was that, so that's why I say there's some mystery here in terms of, that, that I don't necessarily have an answer for other than just looking straight at the history as, it, as it's being revealed. Yeah. I have a thought. Yeah. They started doing baptisms for the dead um, in the river and they didn't record it properly. They had to do them again later. And do them right? If, what if he had had the Melchizedek priesthood with Peter, James, and John, and it wasn't recorded properly, and then he needed to receive it again? Could that be the answer, is, it, is that it wasn't necessarily recorded, or that it was being formalized? Right. Could be. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's what I say. All I'm, re all I'm just saying, here's what we're finding in the history, and it's, it's a fascinating little wrinkle that we don't necessarily have an answer for, nor, nor to uh, LDS scholars. Yeah. It occurred to me that maybe those men needed to see that coordination. Maybe. Oh, yeah. That very, very... It may be the same way that the Savior needed to be baptized. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. And I've thought about that one as well. And that, that's a possibility as well. So, but you're thinking. Be think that the idea of all of this is saying, let's, let's talk about what we're discovering in our history and then do your own thinking and come to your own conclusions. Because I don't think there's a set conclusion on this other than what Joseph was reporting. And, and we ought to be able to do that. We ought to be searching and thinking and see what makes sense as we look at it. Yeah, Arjean? You think there's different offices in different times because in the 1980s, my husband was 70. Sure. 70. Yeah. Yeah. All I, all I know is that if you actually look at the history, you're just not seeing the ordinations and the setting apart for missions and stuff like that until this moment. When this happens, now they're setting people apart, other people are ordaining other people, and suddenly you get this explosion of some of the traditional... Because even though it doesn't completely make sense to us, when you just look at now what they start doing in terms of the way they ordain each other, it does make sense if you watch their behavior. So, all right. Says, was that not? You can unbuckle the seatbelt. There's, there's nothing more. <laughs> there's no more surprises coming today. Okay. Move around the cabin. Yes, you can now move around the cabin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they are. You think maybe it's a reordination? Just a, it's possible. It's possible. Although, again, I just look at I look at what they start doing afterwards, and it's what you would expect. If we didn't have any other information, we just thought that's when the priesthoods were finally done. That's when everybody starts going out and setting people apart and organizing branches, and it's what you'd expect. So, anyway, so on that note, have I got you stirred up enough to start thinking and research? <laughs> that's the idea. I, that's what makes our church history so fascinating is that we are learning and growing and we're trying to answer questions and we don't have all the answers. Most of us brothers and sisters grew up in the era of uh, Bruce R. McConkie's Mormon doctrine. What, what's the answer to that question? Bruce says this. It's on page 42. There it is. Okay, we have the ant. We want our answers. Okay, it's not so much. Not so much. We need to be able to look at it with a nuanced eye and say we need to come to some of our own conclusions. Yeah. You know, I think it comes back to us receiving faith for ourselves. Yeah. Know that this is true. Yeah. And to be on our knees praying. And get our own answers. Absolutely. Yep. I. 
could not agree more. That's probably a good way to end. Okay. Um, Bearing my testimony, the, again, I just, I just love the, the history. It's the origin stories, and it's sometimes it's different than what we think it is. But again, uh, and I can't say this enough, I, I just watch very human people trying to make the best decisions they made under the circumstance. I watch Joseph and Sidney and Oliver with imperfect knowledge and imperfect understanding trying to make sense. I watch the Lord trying to teach them through revelations, through the the revelation of the the new translation of the of the Bible, trying to train up these people and and uh, so it makes them much more human than it makes them much more like us because we're just trying to do the same thing. So Anyway, bury my testimony that, and I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.